That's Rebelper in the Tijuana Brass. I'm Meg Rowley, and on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, I welcome Ben Clemens back to the program. Ben and I discuss the implications of some reported changes to the MLB ownership rules, which would make it easier for investment funds like hedge funds and pensions to buy minority stakes in teams, before we shift our attention to the postseason. We contemplate the change to baseball, what we have enjoyed from the playoffs so far, the Astros' seemingly depressed offense, and a bevy of intentional walks. All of that is coming up, but first it is my obligation to tell you that Fangraphs memberships are now available at Fangraphs.com. For the monthly cost of renting one spooky movie, you can support all the great work at Fangraphs, including Ben's recent intentional walk math, Dan Zimborski's LG for the Season series, and Jay Jaffe's reported work live from Yankee Stadium, plus a whole bunch of other playoff coverage. You may also, for a slightly greater sum, purchase an ad-free membership and enjoy Fangraphs without banner ads, facilitating faster loading times. That bit of business being complete, I take you to my conversation with Ben Clemens, writer for Fangraphs, which begins right now. Ben, the last time you were on Fangrass Audio, you were in the process of moving and were recording from an Airbnb, but now you are recording from your home. I am, yeah. It's, it's a lot nicer. <laughs> Welcome back to the show. Thanks. So it had, it's been a minute since you've been on, and we have many things to talk about, several of which will be playoff-related. But before we got into any of that, I wanted to take this opportunity. We are recording on Thursday. I have no sense of what day it is, like uh, natively in my heart. Uh, I have to keep checking the calendar. I don't know if you're experiencing that kind of time dilation with the playoffs. I'm on a very strict dog day of week schedule for oh. daycare, so I have the days perfect. Oh, so this is another reason I should get a dog. <laughs> if you Got don't it. know what day of the week it is, yeah. Yeah, okay. Right. Well, that seems like a, a snugglier uh, approach than the calendar. So we are recording this on Thursday, and you wrote today for Fangraphs.com about some of the reported changes that we might see in the near future in MLB's ownership rules. And you, being a former uh, or at least not currently, uh, finance sort, have a sort of unique perspective on what those uh, rule changes might mean. And I thought we could talk about them yeah, uh, if, if you're keen. So, so Ben, set the stage for us. What what change uh, are we seeing proposed? We should say that this has uh, not yet been announced by MLB. And so some of the specifics uh, of its implementation, assuming it happens, we're not yet privy to. But what what do we know at the moment yeah, so we don't know much at the moment, but what's come out is that MLB is looking at letting a wider array of people take minority stakes in teams. So what that basically means is that if you're a big pool of money that gets money from a lot of people, say a college endowment, right now that might be kind of tricky to be a minority owner of a baseball team. It's not impossible. Liberty Media has done a similar thing. And, sure. Uh, I think Rogers has a similar thing with the Blue Jays. But there's a lot of like red tape and making sure everything works and you know boxes to check to do that. Without knowing more, it's hard to say exactly what's going to happen. But it seems like baseball wants to open up so non-decision-making stakes, like minority stakes only, to a wider array of people. Both because it's hard to sell off minority stakes right now because they're just so they're just such big numbers now that teams are worth you know billions rather than hundreds of millions. Sure. And because and this is not really stated in the article, but it seems like a logical conclusion, 
some people who own 100% of their team would rather own 75%. Sure. They'd like to realize some of the gain that they have no doubt accrued over the course of their ownership, right? Yeah, exactly. They'd, they'd probably still like owning it, but they wouldn't mind having some money too. Yeah. So that means that in addition to, uh, as far as we know from our um, from what's been reported in our own educated guessing, uh, in addition to um, entities like college endowments like you laid out or say pension funds, it might also open the door to other kinds of investment vehicles like say hedge funds owning parts of baseball teams. Yeah. So if you look at this story, there's this fund called Galatioto Sports. I'm not confident I'm pronouncing that right at all. <laughs> that that is raising $500 million to invest in minority stakes. So it's not exactly a hedge fund and it's not exactly right. kind of a, it's more of a special purpose vehicle. It's going to have, I think, 100 members only, which is more than there are members of any, like, that's more than there are members of any ownership group, I believe. Sure. But a lot less than, say, you know, Harvard's endowment. There's a lot of people who are represented by that. Got it. It's kind of an in-between stake, but... Presumably, kind of all investment funds would fit into similar buckets at some point. There, again, there's not much clarity on that exactly so far. And we, you know, th this has been sort of an era the last couple of years where we have fretted as, oh, do we get to we get to use your commentariat role from a Fangrass chat the other the other day? Uh, we get we have worried sort of collectively about some of the incentives that exist for owners. Uh, as you note in the piece, they are not they are not exclusively profit driven. But you know, if fans had their druthers, we would like them to be exclusively winning baseball games driven, uh, and they are not. And this um, this potential change in ownership rules presents a situation where we might have those who are not only uh, profit motivated but required to be profit maximizers for their investors in a position where they are owning baseball teams. Yeah, it's um, it'd be a change, and I think baseball has had it not pretty good historically, but there have been a lot of owners that have tried to win historically. Right. And that, you know, the Mike Illiches of the world and so on. But he's he was notable because of his extreme willingness to win, not because he was the only owner willing to try to win at all. Right. Like most owners care about maximizing long-term profit, but they also care about winning. And, you know, they didn't buy a sports team so their team could be the 28th best team in the league and they could make a revenue stream that they bought the team because, you know, they wanted to be popping champagne with players and winning World Series. Right. And, you know, hedge funds like champagne, famously, they're pro champagne, but maybe <laughs> not in a in a baseball context. So what are the what are their concerns that this potential shift has raised for you, a, f a former or at least not current finance type? You know, you're sitting there as like a, a finance guy, you know, you know about the finance in a way that's way more recent and relevant to this situation than but then say I as a former finance gal. Yeah, um, I never worked in kind of like company acquisition or anything. Right. I, uh, my experience with finance is way more so from thinking about maximizing profits and maximizing like long-term expected value of an investment. And like investment funds are really good at that. They're, the, the market's very efficient and they're quite good at that. And they also, like you said, have a duty to do that. They, right. It's not as though they're doing it because they love it. It's fun. I mean, maybe that's the case, but also they have to. It would be at the very least unethical and very likely illegal not to. And what that means is that every question that a team makes would need to be focused on long-term profit. 
Now, this is if you're a majority owner, and that's not what MLB is opening things up to yet. They're opening right. it up to minority owners who theoretically don't have much decision-making uh, say. But you can imagine that this is kind of getting near a tipping point where once you have someone who is strictly long-term profit maximizing running a team, you might say, well, why do we ever, you know, why aren't we sending down our player for September to preserve an extra year of arbitration eligibility now that we're only 10% to make the playoffs? It's hard for like you to argue that that's like not long-term profit maximizing. It's not going to really decrease your revenues from the fans. The fans know you're still trying to win, but it might save you $2 million here. So right. if you're an owner right now, you can say, ah, I don't really want to do that. Like it might be a marginal savings, but it's not really worth it. And I kind of want good relations with my players. That would help me. I'd feel better. If you're, you know, the board of an investment company that owns that team, I think you'd be negligent not to consider it. Right. And not because you're a bad person or not any value judgment at all. You just, you have a responsibility that you have to follow. Right. And and so we find ourselves in a position where we might be bringing into a situation where we already feel that owners are perhaps not as motivated to play October baseball as we would like them to be, uh, where we have more folks at the table with less incentive to play in October and more incentive to cash a check at the end. Yeah, I think that's a very good way of putting it. And there is also kind of a unique spot that baseball's in where there there's no minimum salary and there are these huge regional TV deals. So baseball looks a lot different than the other major sports Yeah, in that way because most of their major sports make a lot of their money on national TV deals. I don't exactly know how basketball works, but you know, football only sells a national TV deal. And so that kind of fixes the incentives a bit differently and they also have a salary floor. Right. Baseball, you know, I haven't looked inside the books of any team, so I don't really know, but it wouldn't shock me if the way that revenue sharing and the way that TV deals work, that there's just very little correlation to spending extra money and making more money. Yeah. It's concerning. I find it very concerning. I guess one of the upsides of this is that we might end up in a situation where we have more teams where we have access to their books, but it seems still like it would be relatively opaque and probably not worth the trade-off. I mean, I think without changing the rules of baseball competition, it's not a great idea. But I can imagine a world where you mess with the rules of competition slightly, you know, tie revenue sharing a little bit more to win win win-loss record, kind of add in some amount of salary floor or some kind of livable wage floor for minor leaguers Mm -hmm. and then it ends up being a positive because there are real benefits to having kind of a more liquid market of more accountable people i mean not the least of which is that teams have often kind of danced along the edge of the law let's say when it comes to signing latin american players to july 2 deals you just wouldn't be able to do that if the books were more public you just couldn't yeah you you would imagine at least we would hope that Uh, faced with the prospect of some of the more unsavory parts of the baseball labor market that, say, uh, the pension fund for California's public employees would say, "Um, (laughs) excuse me. (laughs) Yeah. And if you're a team and someone's saying, look, we will take $500 million of minority ownership off your hands. I know that you want that. You're looking for liquidity. And in exchange, do a few less sketchy things with teenagers who are, you know, questionably able to exactly understand what they're consenting to you'd be like oh okay that that sounds like a good deal i get 500 million dollars for that 
Yeah. But again, I think I liked very much, I liked this piece in general as a good piece. But I think that one of the parts of it that I don't know that this was a point that you were trying to make explicitly, but, you know, when when folks are left to their own devices to respond to incentives, we often see them do that, right? And they do it reasonably rationally. But, you know, what really makes them do it for sure is regulation to that end. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and right now, as you point out, baseball doesn't really have, I mean, baseball is not without regulations internally, right? There are rules, um, so many of which are collectively bargained, but they do not necessarily have a regulatory infrastructure that is meant to maximize the greater good of the sport. And so introducing something like that might be uh, useful, but we probably don't want to rely on, uh, you know, CalPERS having a, a particular understanding of the international free agent market to achieve those ends yeah and to be clear i, I picked them just because they're a large pension yeah. but there, no, there's all kinds yeah all sorts yeah. uh yeah i think that um when when one is looking for a uh, an actor in the financial market that most people assume to be on the up and up um you know pension funds that's a good that's a good choice people generally think of them favorably they're a less controversial subset in the in the financial space than say hedge funds are yeah i think so well, I, I imagine, Ben, that we will impose on your expertise uh, on this question again, because it is likely to both come into greater uh, clarity and relief in the coming months and also uh, make us fret. But I think that what we'll do now is talk about something more fun or maybe not more fun, depending on the answer to this question. And, and that is to talk about the baseball playoffs. As I mentioned, we're recording this on Thursday, uh, mere hours before game four of the ALCS uh, kicks off. First, I'd like to uh, offer my condolences to your St. Louis Cardinals uh, on their loss to the Nationals. Sorry about that, bud. Yeah, it was, um, it was not the best series they've ever played. <laughs> Are you when so you know you are uh in addition to being a baseball fan you you obviously write about baseball a great deal for us and and also for a team blog and I'm curious what perspective you're able to put on a a loss like that for the Cardinals because on the one hand you know any playoff loss is no fun I mean I I don't remember the last playoff loss that felt that way to me it's <laughs> hazy I don't remember some parts of of uh, English lit from high school either but um so on the one hand, that's a bummer. But on the other hand, your Cardinals outperformed expectations for a lot of folks, although I will say that I had them in the playoffs because I'm nice like that. Yeah. One thing that I've noticed has changed as I've worked here is I spend so much time looking for things to be excited about, about every baseball player, essentially, just because yeah. that's my job, yeah. that I feel like part of really being a fan is rooting for your team, but also kind of rooting against the other team. Mm -hmm. Not always explicitly, but... I want my guys to succeed and your guys to fail, and then that feels good. Yeah. And I just, like, I just don't have that in me anymore. Like, I really wanted the Cardinals to win, but I also like pretty much everyone on the Nationals. <laughs> yeah. And, like, who wouldn't want those guys to win? They're great. Like, yeah. how fun is Juan Soto? How fun is Anthony Rendon? How fun is Sean Doolittle? He's awesome. Yeah. And so it really took a lot of the sting out of it. Yeah. Where I, I'm not happy with the way it went. Like, I wish it had gone better, and I wish the Cardinals had at least, you know, look decent they, they they did not play well at all in that series no but i don't know i i can kind of take it with a little bit of perspective in that hey it was a great season it was a lot of fun they played into the playoffs they played a lot of meaningful games and the world series is going to be great whoever plays in it now yeah and it would have been if the cardinals had won so i'm just yeah. 
I think it's been a good baseball year, so I'm happy about that. And I guess the question then, you know, on the one hand, we can't, we would probably rather talk about other stuff, but I don't think we can in good conscience uh, talk about the postseason as baseball analysts uh, without talking about this, which is that it seems based on research from Rob Arthur, among others, but Rob Arthur in the main from baseball perspectives, that the ball that is being used in the postseason is different than the ball that was used during the regular season in a way that is uh, quite noticeable. And I'm curious, there, there is a question, and we will, we'll take this part of the question second, but we'll just start with, the, 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 with a different part. But this is the answer to the question I'm about to ask you is not to say that if the ball is different, that that is a good or a bad thing. We will need to consider that question separately. But I wonder how much you personally mind like do you does it matter to you has it been noticeable to you i know it's hard to say has it been noticeable when it's something we've talked about so much so uh you probably would have noticed eventually even if you hadn't initially but is it a thing that has marred your postseason experience in any way you know not really i think people started talking about it before rob's article came out even yeah just there are just fewer home runs but at that point, I was skeptical because I think his article did a really good job of finding something with a huge sample size and very noticeable differences. He looked at every fastball thrown mm-hmm. and how much it slowed down in air. And so you get a really big sample size of like really precise measurements. Whereas, you know, if a home run goes out or doesn't go out, that's very imprecise. Like a lot of balls are hit. We don't know the spin on them. Right. You know, the sound of the bat sounds different depending on which microphone you have. Yeah. And so I'm not sure I would have noticed if he hadn't done the work. Or I would have noticed that scoring was down. And I would have said, well, scoring was down last postseason too. Right. So, scoring is often down in the postseason because you have better pitching going more often, right? Right. Exactly. And that, that tends to over, like, it tends to overcome the fact that the lineups get a little bit better. The, right. the pitching gets more better. Right. Um, yeah. That didn't sound good. No, but I, <laughs> yeah, but that, I know what you mean. Yeah. And, um, so before his article came out, it didn't really affect my enjoyment of the postseason at all. I don't think I would—I would have noticed that scoring was down and would have kind of rolled with the punches. Mm-hmm. Now that his article has come out, the thing that's detracting from my enjoyment of the postseason is that baseball keeps essentially just saying that it didn't happen. They're yeah. doing a like, everybody look over here, look over here, there's nothing to see there kind of move. And that feels weird to me. Yeah. So this is this is the part that I think is I think this is the part that is bothering me the most because I noticed I think in one of the games and now I'm not going to remember which one so the imprecision here is something that uh, you and our listeners will have to forgive but there were it felt like I think during the divisional series in those games that were played in Bush Stadium, that there were several balls that when I heard them off the bat, having watched many, many games of 2019 baseball, I thought to myself, well, that's a home run. And then there was Dexter Fowler to catch them. (laughs) And they just sort of died at the track in a way that did not feel like a function of very good pitching, but did sort of, you know, kind of make your spidey sense tingle a little bit. And then to hear baseball when confronted with more meaningful data than my spidey sense, which is not meaningful data, to have them sort of hem and haw about it has been really discouraging. But yeah, I I do wonder 
what it is that they think we're going to take away from their responses to all of this, because I can't imagine they think that this is a satisfactory answer, and it's not as if we're going to stop talking about it. Yeah, like, it might have been a satisfactory answer if the evidence that we had was there's fewer, there are fewer home runs. Then you might say, ah, okay, that's pretty anecdotal, and baseball's saying nothing's changed, and all right, I believe them. My prior is that they probably aren't lying. But now there's really good evidence that the ball has changed. I think, you know, really good scientifically backed up evidence, and Rob has now looked at it in a few different ways. There's just, there's not much question anymore. Like, you, right. need, to up, you need to update what you thought. It's clear that the balls are changed. And so the fact that they are just saying, oh, it's the same balls. We just dug into a bin and these ones came out. (laughs) Like, it's possible, but it's incredibly unlikely. And I would be a lot happier if they said something like, you know, these things vary a lot. And we we always switch batches for the postseason. And I don't know, like, we don't have much control over the manufacturing process. We have much less than we thought. Then I'd be like, okay, that seems reasonable. But the fact that they just continue to stick their head in the sand, just, yeah. It's drawing more of my attention than I'd like for it to during a really fun playoffs. It seems as if, and I've said this before, so we don't need to belabor the point, but I don't, I continue to be surprised by how comforting the commissioner's office seems to find the idea or how comforting they expect us to find the idea that they have this little control over the most important piece of equipment on the field. <laughs> like yeah. that is, that's not comforting to me. I think you probably need to to know that. You need to know about that, especially when you've purchased a stake in the, the manufacturer. Yeah, what's weird to me is I can understand that because I don't think they exactly understand what makes a baseball aerodynamic. Right. It's tricky. It's weirder to me that they can basically insist stuff that's false. Right. I think it would still be worrisome, like you said, if they just said, oh, we have no control over this process and it's crazy. Then I'd be like, oh, maybe you should get more control over it. Right. (laughs) Really really affects who wins baseball games. Yeah. But this just seems like different to me somehow. I'm not exactly sure I'm putting in the right words, but I don't like that it draws away from the baseball on the field, which has been really, really good. This has been one of my favorite playoffs, like just from what happens on the field. And it kind of sucks that we have to talk about the baseball during it. What about this particular offseason has stood out to you as so enjoyable? What what has really resonated in terms of making it stand out versus other postseasons? So mainly the first round was just really long and had a lot of good series. You know, three of the four series went five. Then the Twins can never beat the Yankees, so that wasn't great. But all three of those series were really entertaining. They had kind of swings. They had exciting decisions that all the teams made that came back to bite them or worked out. But everyone was making a choice. You know, Verlander started on short rest. Kershaw came in in relief. The Cardinals were intentionally walking people. Davey Martinez was throwing Scherzer in relief in game one. Uh, Game two, actually, rather. They were just, everyone was making really exciting moves. The series were very close. You know, there was, as always, some Astros pitch tipping stuff, which is always fun. (laughs) It just kind of had every storyline I like in the playoffs. And it also had a lot of competitive games. And that's, yeah. that hasn't really kept up in the the NLCS, but the ALCS has been really back and forth, and both teams look like juggernauts, and that's what they are. Yeah. And so I like that. I have enjoyed very much, and Jay wrote about this for us at Fangraphs, and I imagine he'll do probably do a little bit of an update as we round into World Series form, but I've just enjoyed how much starting pitching we've gotten to watch. <laughs> 
it's been nice to watch starters, man. Like they're really good. They've yeah. been they've been really good, you know. I would rather watch Garrett Cole pitch than a lot of other people. And the Astros were just like, "Yeah, man, no problem. We got you." <laughs> yes, one. I hate bringing this back to the ball, but I'm going to. One thing that like does seem true is that the less lively the ball, the higher percentage of innings that starters will pitch because they're on a maximum pitch count. You increase offense, it's more pitches per inning, so starters will get fewer of the innings. That's just that's a tough thing to get around. Like the pitch count limits they're on are pretty immutable. Right. And more offense means more pitches. And so that, that's been a nice benefit. You know, Adam Wainwright didn't pitch into the eighth inning very often this year, but he no. did in two of his two starts or whatever <laughs> in yeah. the playoffs. And, you know, the same thing kind of goes for Anibal Sanchez, all the Nationals guys. Patrick Corbin pitches, what, like twice a day now? Yeah. It's pretty great. I think they have to, like, staple Scherzer's shoes to the dugout floor to keep him from just running out to the mound at any given moment. Yeah, out there ready to go. There's something really to a a good law, like a starter being on the mound over many innings, and you kind of watch him struggle. It just feels more fun to watch. Yeah, I I think that it it is a a moment in baseball that naturally lends itself to narrative. The postseason is a time of year where we are sort of most sympathetic to narrative as a thing that drives us forward because you have this short little series and you want to be able to say something about it in a way that you know requires you to not necessarily avail yourself of all of the statistical tools that you have over the course of 162 games and so we like narrative and that starting pitcher to hitter narrative is super dramatic and it comes with all sorts of you know close-ups on the face just get to look at Scherzer looking like he's ready to run through a brick wall or Garrett Cole looked very, he's quite calm. Yeah, he also gave a just incredible interview after his game. Yeah. That is another great thing that you get out of the postseason, which is more access to players. And it seems like this year that's gone in a way where players are pretty open about stuff. They're actually giving real answers. And that's a lot of credit to players because it'd be easy to just clam up and be like, "Eh, no comment, no comment. Both teams played hard. And they really haven't this year. And that's also increased my enjoyment. So those things are in the postseason's favor. We have the ball sort of in the uh, thumbs down column. You have found a fun little beat in the course of this postseason, which is doing math about people's intentional walks. (laughs) Yeah, it's been like a lot closer than I expected. I am kind of in the old school sabermetric camp. Old school sabermetric camp. That sounds weird. (laughs) Intentional walks are bad, so stop doing them, you morons. Yeah. I think is the technical term for it. Yeah. And it's just very easy to look at an intentional walk and be like, oh, why are you putting people on base? People on base score runs. And that, that's still true for most intentional walks. Like, yeah. Managers are doing too many still. But there actually are cases where they make sense. And it's actually kind of fun to analyze. Like you said, it, it's a nice little beat to have. Because what have there been 27 playoff games so far, counting the wild card games? That's mm-hmm. two days of baseball. Like, you just can't do that much analysis. Yeah. You just can't say that much about any one player. Right. And so decisions are more kind of immutable, and you can look at them. It's not a different decision if it happens, you know, 10 times. If one right. decision happens, you can analyze that decision. Whereas, you know, if one guy hits a home run, it's like, oh, yeah, he hit a home run. Yeah. Right. And, you know, based on the uh, the Nationals advancing – you're going to potentially have more intentional walks 
to talk about. If the Astros advance, you will have to rely exclusively on uh, the team from DC to do that because is it true that they still, they just didn't do any? They didn't issue yeah. a single one the whole season? It's still true. And I actually don't think that can be right. Yeah, it seems like there has to be some potential, like you've said, like some of these that you analyzed have been either significantly closer in terms of their soundness than you initially assumed going in. And some of them actually made a great deal of sense and ended up being the right strategic call, even if we still uh, feel a little nervous about it being sabermetric sorts. So it does seem like there has to be a mistake has to have been made. Yeah, like I think the one in the Yankees Astros game is the clearest example where it would be crazy not to intentionally walk someone here. Yeah. Where you intentionally walk Alex Bregman, who's literally Alex Bregman. He's really good. Yeah. To get to face Yuli Gurriel, who is significantly worse despite being good, doesn't hit lefties as well as Bregman, like in a statistically significant way. Yeah. And you're also in a place where Bregman's run would put you down 4 nothing against Garrett Cole. And it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> like, I think we can agree that that run's not that important. Right. There's no way that there have been no situations like that for the Astros this year. Like, a good rule, if you had to pick a blanket rule and always stick to it, is never intentionally walk someone. But it's a good heuristic, but there's, it's impossible that there are no exceptions. And I think Aaron Boone seems to actually be doing a really good job of that. Yeah, he seems to be picking his spots, no doubt aided by uh, some good analysis from the front office, but he is, his in-game management has seemed to be pretty savvy uh, thus far is seemingly tinged with uh with paranoia perhaps or yeah. uh just an accurate assessment depending on uh which school of thought you you subscribe to about the Astros pitch tipping. Is there ever a point where you look at some of the rigmarole and think, "Oh, come on, guys." Like James Paxton was cycling through signs with no one on in the first inning. That one game. Uh the Yankees have been going through signs with no one on the entire series yeah. and the Rays also did it the yeah. series. Yes. Um, I think that concern that it's happening a lot is overblown, but if I were the team, I would be as cautious as possible. Sure. It's not as though they have no history of doing this. Right. And so, yeah, be, be careful. They're big games and, you know, the likelihood of, of them catching you is maybe not high, but the cost if they do catch you is quite high. Right. So... I mean, even the Astros were cycling through multiple signs with no yeah. one on at home. And it's like, oh, guys, I don't know about this one. <laughs> yeah, well, and yeah, it's been um, it's been a, a theme. It seems to have been a theme. I was struck by, and this, I, I don't want to put more weight on this than is maybe, maybe reasonable because it could be that um, it is a quirk of the way that Ken has decided to phrase this in his tweet. Um, but, you know, the Yankees suspected that the Astros were using a whistling sound from their dugout in game one of the ALCS uh, as a way to convey signs to hitters. And Rosenthal reported today that per sources, MLB investigated and found Astros did not engage in any activities prohibited by MLB policies. And on the one hand, you think, well, that's that. And on the other hand, you think to yourself, how specific are the policies? <laughs> yeah, I think that... Might there be a range phrasing. of activity that is not specifically prohibited, but is perhaps flirting with the sort of behavior that would inspire MLB to establish new precedent, for instance? I think their phrasing was very deliberate. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think they happened upon that and said, oh, we'll, just, we'll just go with it. Close enough. Yes. 
it was what two postseasons ago now that the Astros had a guy in the yeah. camera well with a super advanced phone that has a yes AI on it. Yeah, which is now not, I think, as a result of that, but just generally no longer legal to import into the United States. <laughs> right. I, I will say that as a follow-up to that, just to make all the Astros fans who are gnashing their teeth not gnash them quite so hard, uh, Ken follows that up by saying, teams are prohibited from signaling to hitters from the dugout through whistling or other means. MLB had an official in the camera well next to the Astros dugout in game one and one in the back of the dugout in game two. Neither officials nor umpires heard whistling. Yankees won game one seven to zero. So that is the that is a more complete yeah. report of uh, of what what went on. But I will say, if the Astros are stealing signs, they're not converting that into offense very well. Their, yeah. their offense has been kind of bad this postseason, especially bad if you take out the like first inning against Tyler Glasnow, where it seemed pretty clear they did have it. That wasn't sign stealing. He was they just, just had his, his number. Yeah, yeah, yes. This is another. This is another thing, Ben. You've just written so many very good things for Fangraphs.com lately that um, I had forgotten that you, at my request, took a look at that Astros offense and were like, "Hey, what's going on here?" Yeah, it's funny because I just said the sample size isn't really big enough to analyze any team, <laughs> and you still want to. Yeah, and I was curious how abnormal some of these. Uh, some yes. of these batting runs were like the Cardinals offense was really bad and I found that it was maybe a standard deviation and a half below normal which is a lot but yeah. something you'd expect to see reasonably often in the playoffs and the Astros were even a little better than that right it did give me newfound respect for how tough the pitching slate they've faced is oh my goodness yeah it has been quite the gauntlet yeah they've like the worst pitcher they faced I guess they they saw CC Sabathia for a batter but they're facing these teams who don't have bad parts of their bullpen. Right. Like the Yankees mop-up guys are Sessa and Loaisiga, and they're both really good. They'd be, you know, the best reliever on the Nationals, both of them. Oh, well, who among us? <laughs> <laughs> who among us wouldn't be the best reliever on the Nationals? That's very rude of me. I would be terrible. Yeah, and to be fair, Sean Doolittle's probably better than they are. But, oh yeah, yeah. I so think that they'd that be the is, second best reliever. In the yeah, I think that that is fair. Yes, it is. It has been. It has been a a noticeable difference. I guess it does bring us back around to the ball, which is that you know the the tricky thing. This is a perhaps a disturbing look into what an an unjuiced ball era would look like. I know Michael Bauman wrote about this for the Ringer earlier this week. Because so much of the offense, you know, so much of every team's offense is dependent on hitting home runs, if the ball does not travel as far, goodness, there might be some low-scoring games. Yeah. We don't want the entire... We don't want the entire season to look like the postseason. I suppose that's an interesting question because there is so much that is different about postseason baseball versus regular season baseball. Does it affect your enjoyment that there is that sort of divergence from the norm when we are supposedly determining the best team in baseball? Not really. I don't it doesn't bother me really either. use the playoffs to determine the best team in baseball, though. Yeah. So that's you know, fair. I, I think the best team in baseball is the Astros. Yeah, I think, I think that's for two. You know, whether they'll win this tournament is a different argument. And <laughs> yeah, you want to you want to win the tournament. It uh, counts for a lot. But yeah, no one's going to look back and be like, you know, the 2014 Giants and 2012 Giants were just this absolutely dominant juggernaut better than anyone else. Unless you are. I don't I don't know Giants fans, maybe. But 
like they they won the World Series and that's awesome. And that 2014 yeah. series especially, it was really fun. Madison Bumgarner pitched six innings of relief or whatever. It was yeah. cool. But you shouldn't look at that and be like, yep, best team in baseball. No, we should especially not do it with those teams because yeah. they were engaged yeah. in sorcery. Whereas like maybe last year, I don't know if they asked or if the Red Sox were the best team in the AL, but they arguably were. They won 106 games, 108 games. They won 108, I believe. Yeah, and the Dodgers were pretty clearly the best team in the NL, and so sometimes the best teams play in the World Series. But if I'm not using the World Series to determine who the best team is that year, then I just want it to be exciting and close. And postseason baseball is definitely that. Yeah, particularly when the ball is not flying as far. I'm going to make you answer for your predictions now, which is just so very rude of me. Actually, you did pretty well. I I feel pretty okay about this, yeah. Yeah, geez. I'm going to let you brag about your predictions now. So, Ben, you picked both wildcard winners. Well done, Washington and Tampa Bay. I'm going to compare this to myself. Hey, we're so, so far, you and me, we're neck and neck. And then you successfully picked your Cardinals to advance against the Braves, as did I. And you picked the Nationals to advance against... The Dodgers, as I did, and then we both really liked those twins, and we yeah. were both wrong. But we were both right about Houston, right? I wasn't that goofy, yeah. was I? No, I was not so goofy. And we we both picked uh, Washington to uh, win the NLCS, so good job us. And now we're, we're hitched to this Houston train. Oh, so your picks are the same as mine. Yes, except... Here's where they importantly differ. You, Ben, picked the Washington Nationals to win the World Series, and I picked the Houston Astros. So we are at odds there, but otherwise our picks have been pretty okay so far, so that's fun. What about Washington? Because you you picked what I think I think will be the likely World Series matchup here between the Nationals. Yeah, and and the Astros. What about what about that Nationals team? Makes you think that they're going to unseat uh, Houston? So this will probably be a slight divergence from That's the fine. topic, but basically, I didn't want to just pick. I didn't think of the exercise as just pick the teams that are most likely to win each series. Yeah, because I don't know, like we all have access to zips and sure, you know, I, I can I can work that out without too much trouble. This is the uh, funny thing about me making people do predictions is that often what people will do is they will go and look at our projections and then they pick those. Yeah, and that's a valid way of doing that's it. That's reasonable. I wanted to pick the teams that I thought were the most kind of undervalued by the market. Yeah. That's more interesting to me. And I thought the Nationals were just like a lot better than people thought they were. Like I took a look at gambling odds for all these teams just to see what, you know, where the prices were for them and mm-hmm. how much chance uh, Las Vegas and whoever sets these lines gives each team. And the Nationals like were just much more underdogs than I thought they should be. And I thought they were the second best team in the NL. But despite that, their, their odds of winning and making it to the World Series weren't super high. And I thought, well, I like them a lot more than, you know, the average fan does. So I, I, I should pick them because it'll be fun if they win. And even though I didn't think they were favorites to beat the Dodgers, I thought they were much closer than the world thought. Mm-hmm. And that kind of goes for the World Series, too. Like, the Astros are better than the Nationals. I don't think that's really up for debate. But the Nationals are a lot closer to the Astros than I think the common perception is. And it'd be really fun if they won. So yeah, that's why I picked them. I think that everyone 
wants uh, everyone enjoys when teams that have been long suffering are finally no longer long suffering in part because we like it when other people are happy but i think also in part because other people's sadness can be something we find a little exhausting and so when they are no longer sad we're like we're off the hook for a year so that's the dark side of being a human but i think everyone is excited at the idea of the nationals i mean having won a playoff series unambiguously and then getting to advance all the way to the world series is quite exciting and I wonder what fan sentiment for non for fans who are not invested as you and I are not uh, in particular the particular teams involved where that fan sentiment lies. I imagine that from that perspective, the Nationals are sort of overwhelming favorites. Yeah, well, I think the only series that would be close so far this year would be who do people like less between the Braves and Cardinals? <laughs> That's close. There I mean, were there are some. I mean, every fan base has its unsavory bits, so we should say that so as not to denigrate those two so much. But uh, those two have been very public about some of their unsavory bits. <laughs> Maybe that's a good yeah, way to put it. <laughs> I think that, that's about right. Like every other series, Dodgers, Nationals. Like, of course, the unaffiliated fans are the Nationals. The Dodgers are always there. Yeah. Same thing with Rays, Astros, and Yankees, Twins. I guess I don't know who the unaffiliated fan favorite is between the Yankees and the Astros. That's probably the Astros. Yeah, I think that that's probably right. Oh, boy. Just like two different versions of Evil Empire facing off. Yes. Yes. Well, especially with the... um however accurate or paranoid <laughs> it is especially with the narrative around uh sign stealing i think that yeah there there are different there are different flavors of of villainry that's too strong there are really fun cool players on both those teams which i know you know chicanery uh, maybe chicanery what a good word your editor likes that word that sounds great so you have the nationals winning does y- the answer change for you at all if the yankees advance instead of houston i mean i I think the Nationals will not be favored against either. And, no, they won't be. But I guess, I suppose I'll be rooting for them to win. I don't even know if that's true. I'll be rooting for a good series. Yeah, um, that's all. That's doesn't all really change really... if the Yankees win or the Astros win. I guess I hope the Astros win so my predictions look better, but I also don't care that much. I like very much, and granted, the Yankees come with quite a fearsome lineup of their own, so I don't mean to discount it, but I like very much the idea of watching the Nationals pitching against that Astros lineup. I think that could be great fun. Yeah, I think both these series would have a fun hook. One, yeah. like the hook of the Nationals have the star bats and the Astros have the star starters and the Astros have the star bats and the Nationals have the star starters. It's yeah. very good. And then the hook of like the Nationals bullpen is the worst bullpen potentially ever for a playoff team and the Yankees bullpen is potentially the best bullpen ever for a playoff team. Yeah. Like that's kind of fun. And then, you know, but then the Yankees starters are average and the national starters are maybe the best ever for a playoff team at least how they've pitched in these playoffs they're probably not the best postseason rotation ever but they have pitched really well everyone is getting a preview of your world series preview oh yeah which which i will be doing (laughs) yes ben will be writing our world series preview ben i'm conscious of the the approaching uh two o'clock hour and we've gone 45 minutes which david appleman has told me is the ideal podcast length I don't know if that's right because, you know, sometimes we like to go long. But I think that what we'll do is 
Uh, we will call it there. You will be writing the World Series preview for Fangraphs.com, which people should check out on the site. I will link to the pieces that we have highlighted of yours in this podcast so that folks can snag those to read if they have not yet done so. Uh, I think many of them will continue to be interesting and relevant despite them having already responded to some of the games that have happened because many of them feature teams that are still uh, alive and will be playing for the CS and then for a World Series. But Ben, thank you for joining me. Where can people find you on Twitter? So I'm underscore Ben underscore Clemens, which is hard to say, but yeah. But there are links to it in all of my articles. Yeah. And yeah, that's then you can find me on Fangraphs. Yeah. So people should go do that. Ben, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me, Meg. Mm-hmm.